This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. Many of us start out our careers with the hopes of changing the world, but, uh, you know, the world and its problems can feel enormous. So how can activists and ordinary people confront injustice and still find room for joy and hope? Younger people now, we have been having a lot more conversations about our own healing, about community, and it's kind of pulling people a little bit sooner into this important work, and it's becoming a part of the work. The new book, Be a Revolution, coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. It's Black History Month, the only time of year when America's ugly racial history and the folks who are fighting to change the future get national attention. But the work of challenging racism is happening 12 months a year, and it's being done by professional activists and by those of us who are pushing for progress in our communities, schools, and workplaces. So how could each of us find a way to confront injustice without losing hope or losing ourselves in the process. Our next guest has dedicated her career to finding the answers. Ijeoma Aluo is an activist, self-described internet yeller, and best-selling author. Her books, So You Want to Talk About Race and Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, are staples of anti-racist reading lists. Her new book is Be a Revolution, How Everyday People Are Fighting Oppression and Changing the World, and How You Can Too. And she joins us now. Ijeoma Aluo, welcome to a word. Hi, thanks for having me. I have to ask, and I was kind of racking my brain as I was going through this. What inspired you to write this book now? You know, it really actually started from a place of like deep exhaustion, like psychic and emotional exhaustion. I had been writing about violent white supremacy for a very long time, and I was kind of done. It had taken a lot out of me as a Black woman. And then I realized if I was going to take this break that I desperately needed, I didn't want to quite go out like that. I wanted to make sure that the the work I left people with was one filled with community and joy. And the events around 2020 and the pandemic that we are still in really underscored how important community is and community activism and community movement work. And it w- is what kept me and my family going. And I wanted to celebrate that. And I wanted to give people um, hope and Uh, you know, inspiration for action, because we really desperately need action. I think people spend a lot of time reading, a lot of time studying. Uh, It's time for people to act and to see what people have been doing to really keep us going. There's something to be said for, I think, a a newer generation of writers and academics and public intellectuals and activists who have been out on the ground doing the work for decades But I think the sort of public scrutiny and levels of harassment and white supremacist violence against people who engage in your kind of work really kicked off after the Ferguson uprising. I'm curious if if in sort of your work history and in some of the work history of the people you spoke to, if they point to a critical moment, if they say, you know what, it was it was after Trump, it was after Ferguson, it was during the pandemic when this work reached a point where it's like, okay, I'm. I'm struggling to get up every day. Uh, Yes, I would say, especially for Black women. Black women have been uniquely targeted 
in these years. And I think part of it is because you know, black women, especially black queer women have really been at the forefront of a lot of our movements for a very long time. And for a long time, they were doing this work really in obscurity, really unappreciated for what they've been doing. But once attention, national attention really started focusing in on this work and you're right in 2014, 2015, black women were really, really targeted in this specifically violent way. So yes, when I was talking to black women who've been doing this work, a lot of what you'll see is around that time and then around, you know, Trump getting elected, especially, um, they were finding it hard to leave their home. The fear that this hate that they were seeing online, it was spilling over into their lives, into their homes. You know, there were people talking of like, yeah, I had to find a way to, to do this work that protected my mental and physical health as well. So you profiled more than 30 activists and change makers for this book. What was sort of the range of issues you tried to cover? Like, how did you even choose the sort of universe, right? How did you, I mean, because I know a lot of times with things like this, you start with the people that you know, right? And then you may go to those references, but most scholars know, okay, I got, I got to get people who I don't know, who I had no connection to. So how did you choose these people? What kind of things did you talk about? That's a great question. And you're absolutely right. You know, from the beginning, there were some people that I knew because I had worked with them or had been long time fans of the work that they've been doing that I wanted to profile them in the book. But then it was about research and saying, you know, where is the really exciting kind of work that people aren't hearing about that's being done in community across the country? And so I did a lot of research. There's so many topics that, of course, I couldn't put into the book because it would have been the world's longest book. And then it was really once I sat down and talking with people and saying, you know, I'm really inspired by what you're doing. This is really amazing. Asking, who would you want to see in this book? You know, who inspires you? Who keeps you going? And it led in some really surprising directions, you know, of connections that I didn't know existed that brought me to movement work in places that I didn't know it was being done. And so I ended up grouping it in kind of these broader categories. At first, I thought it was going to be very specific, but the intersectional nature of this work, of course, means that people are working in multiple spaces at once. But we have people doing work around environmental justice, gender justice. We have people, you know, doing work in the arts sectors, all of these different places that are all touched by systemic oppression and systemic racism. And people are doing amazing work that is really helping people every day. What are some of the common threads you heard in the story? We've already talked about, you know, concerns about physical safety. What were threads that you heard as you talked to a lot of these activists and organizers? A lot of people I talked to were long-term activists and organizers, and some people were newer to this work. And I found that a lot of the long all, almost every long-term organizer went through different phases in their work, right? They had their very fired up, young, I can do everything phase. And then their burnout, heartbroken, you know, I can't do anything phase. And then moving through it and figuring out how this work can really stay with them for their lifetime. And so it does take time to realize you need community and you need support. And that came up time and time again, where people would get into this space where they were very isolated and feeling very alone and really burned out. And then if they stay in the work, what brings them back is recognizing that they need community, that they need to prioritize community, they need to prioritize their own mental health. And so I heard that a lot. So I heard, you know, younger people in that space of, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I'm not sleeping, you know, I'm exhausted. And then people who had moved through that space saying, I was there and I had to realize I needed my people and I needed to go to therapy twice a week, or, you know, all of these things that keep people going. And then I would also say, 
say the need for conflict resolution came up time and time again. We're all people, we're all traumatized people doing work that can further traumatize us. And if you don't have good skills in resolving conflict that comes up in movements, that can push people out of movement work faster than anything else. Obviously, the people you spoke to are still active and still organizing. Did any of them talk about people who stepped off the path? Did any of them say, you know, I started, it was three of us and we were tight and we were going to change the world together, but such and such decided they were going to go be a corporate lawyer. Such and such decided they just sold out and joined some particular organization. Did people talk about those who left the path and that it was that part of some of the isolation that they felt now still being in this fight when they've seen others just go by the wayside? It's one thing to retire. It's one thing to step into another lane. Yes, um, it did come up in conversations where a few people who had been in like groups that had meant a lot to them, right? And so often found that that would be the thing that would sometimes break a group apart. If that group started to get a lot of attention, and then you had people saying, hey, come join this think tank or come, you know, have this HR position somewhere or come do this thing that is outside of that work, especially I'd say abolitionist work, which really needs to work outside of systems. And yeah, there was, I think, some sadness in that loss of community, the questioning of were they really there with us in in the first place? And then some people saying, you know what, I get it. This is very hard work and people are trying to do what's best for them. And maybe this is the path they need to be in. But a lot of people were very clear, like that isn't necessarily the work. It's work that can do good. It's work that can make it easier for some people to do the work. It's not the work. It has value, but we have to be really clear about the difference. We're going to take a short break and we come back more with Ichioma Aluo on her new book, Be a Revolution. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered A Word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you. Listening to A Word with Jason Johnson, we're talking with writer and activist Ijeoma Aluo about her new book, be a revolution. So you say in this book that white supremacy is, among other things, a war on imagination. What do you mean by that? I mean a couple of things. I think one, when we think about the way in which the story of who we are as Black people, as populations of color, imagination has been taken from that, right? It's very limited. What we can accomplish, what we can do, what we have done. People really think of us as these flat, one-dimensional monolith. But also when it comes to our systems, we are told time and time again, if we want to make change, that it's very limited what we can do, that there's no way we could come up with something better than what we have. The most we could do is tweak it. And white people will be white people forever. They can't grow. They can't change. Our systems will exist forever. We could never create anything better. And as populations of color, as Black people, we could never create something bigger and better. We could never rise this far above. So don't even try. And when we look at the conversations around it, everything is incremental and it's telling us, don't dig deeper. Don't think that we could have radical change. Don't even dream about it because then you risk, you know, what we have already as if what we have already, you know, is is wonderful. And, and that really harms us. It really puts us in this, you know, space where we are 
doing our part to actually help codify this real harm by saying we can, you know, this has to stay, but what if we just tweaked it, put a new coat of paint on it instead of saying we could really do a lot more than this. What happens when imagination is stifled? What is actually the harm that can happen when an organization or group's leadership or, or, or maybe even sort of the foot soldiers lack that imagination? A couple of things happen. One is, you know, we start accepting change that isn't real change and we start calling it real change and it further strengthens actual systems of oppression. So we have that. But then also what we have is that incremental change that isn't really change that people worked for and fought for, they then fight to protect and they end up fighting people who are asking for more. And so I see that a lot where we see people going, no, we worked so hard for this one thing. We worked so hard for body cameras and now you want to go further? Oh no, but then what if we lose that? What if we lose the body cameras, right? And then you end up with people actually fighting real revolutionary change because they are so caught up in those little bits and pieces that they were made to fight so hard for. And they really think that's it because there's ego involved, there's effort involved, there's time involved. They're still going to make you fight super hard for this change that doesn't really change, right? And so then we end up with all of this infighting, right? And we end up with what people often see are generational gaps. We see people turning on each other. We see people directing funds that could be really on the ground, helping people doing really important change, instead going to people doing the most, you know, incremental, you know, surface level change, it is deeply harmful. And it also is really discouraging, right? Because people put all this effort in, people work so hard. If we look at the aftermath of the 2020 uprising for black lives, and we see all this incremental change that people fought really hard for, and we see how quickly it's called back. We have people go, well, why even try? Why even bother? Everything we did, it doesn't matter. It does matter, of course, but we were really convinced that these tiny little changes were huge, you know, and it was treated like, you know, the 2% of police funding taken from one department and given to another was taking every penny from cops, right? And we were like, yay, we got this instead of being really critical of it. And so then, of course, when policing stays the same or is even strengthened, we think that our activism is pointless. And it's not. It's just we weren't asking for the right things. We were being sold incremental change as revolution. And we weren't able to build our demands in a way that really had true accountability for the powers that be. A lot of people who want to work in racial justice want to focus in one particular area. Like they'll look in housing or they'll look at environmental justice or they'll look at prisons or food in schools, that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things you talk about in your book is you suggest that sort of being that issue focused can be a bit of a mistake. Talk a little bit about that. So I would say you can absolutely find the space that has your interest, your skill set, and live and work in that space and do great work. But you have to have a systemic analysis of that space. Because if you don't, the work you do can actually cause harm, not only to the work you're doing, but to the work other people are doing as well. And so if you say, what are the systems at play? Who benefits from this? How does this work on this systemic level? How is it impacting these populations? What else are they impacted by? Then you can actually do really effective work, even in just one space, so that when other people come to you and say, hey, can you support us? Or did you know this is connected to this issue? You won't say, no, I only do this, or no, that's not related. You will instead have that real intersectional, um, you know, 
deeply rooted systemic analysis that will enable you to do really important work. It's when people say, you know, I only care about the environment. If it's not environment, I don't want to hear it. And it blocks them from hearing all of these other things that interact with it that can actually make it so that not only are they harming other movements, but they're not even doing effective environmental justice work. One of the things that you talk about also, and and one of the overall themes is like finding joy, finding space in what is sometimes really depressing, really frustrating and very difficult work. I know people who do this kind of act as work. So I hear the different ways that people sort of find joy. But what I'm curious about is how has that changed? Because one of the things you do in the book is you talk to people who've been doing this for five years and you talk to some people who've been doing this for 30, right? How does finding joy for sort of older organizers and activists differ from the joy that's being found by people who have just sort of gotten into these sorts of movements? It's interesting. I think that almost everyone I talked to went through this kind of this stage where joy was not a part of the work. It was you, you better eat, drink, sleep, movement, work all of the time, or you're not doing the work. Right. And I think it's kind of that stereotype that we have of movement workers where you can't have a conversation with them about anything that's not movement work. And then they find that that's not sustainable and it's super harmful. Now, some people find that a little bit earlier and some people find it after a lot of real serious harm. And they should do a lot of healing around that. So I actually find for a lot of older movement workers, because we've long had this popular idea that movement work is all sacrifice, you know, that if you're not, you know, putting your body down on the line every day, you're not doing the work. It has taken some people a few decades to realize how deeply harmed they are, how incomplete their whole lives are and how much that impacts their work and their ability to keep doing it. And so they're having to do a lot of recovery and a lot of healing. But I find that younger people now, we have been having a lot more conversations, right, about our own healing, about community, about self-care and community care. And it's kind of pulling people a little bit sooner into this important work and it's becoming a part of the work. So it's no longer a thing that you have to do separately. Say, I'm going to go do movement work and then I'm going to try to heal. I'm going to find joy. It's Joy is part of movement work. So we're having this event and this event might be a little brutal. It might hurt. How are we uplifting people? How are we connecting people? How are we keeping them going at the same time? And I think that that's a really beautiful thing to see. I worry a little bit about the commodification of it that can happen, right? I don't like the way in which some people sell this as um, if you're just caring for your own happiness, you're, you're a revolution because it doesn't begin and end within us, right? It is about community. It is about systems. And there are ways in which we can do that, that strengthen community, you know, and make it so that we can collectively continue to do this work. We're going to take a short break and we come back more about the new book, Be a Revolution with Ijeoma Luo. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking with Ijeoma Aluo about her new book, Be a Revolution. In your 2018 book, So You Want to Talk About Race, it climbed back to being a bestseller after George Floyd was murdered. And here we are. We're four years from 2024. I know you have this conversation. I have this conversation. In the people who you talk to, is there sort of a sense of, of accomplishment now? Do people look back at the last four years and say, wow, that was really rough, but at least we kind of got this? Or is there a sense now that we've seen such grotesque retrenchment that people may be hitting that low spot that you've talked about before because of, of 
how much pushback we've seen since the quote unquote gains of 2020? I would say it's a mix. I would say that for people who got into this work in 2020, oh, they're feeling dejected. They are feeling beaten down. They are feeling like, you know, what they did didn't matter. For people who were doing this work when Trayvon Martin was murdered, for people who were starting then and moving through all of these movements, who've been quietly plugging away in community doing this work when there was no news cameras, they recognize these patterns as part of what happens. Anytime we get any progress, even if it's just symbolic, that pushback is always so brutal. And we see white supremacist systems trying to re-entrench themselves even harder. And that's where we're at right now. And it is a particularly dangerous place that we're in. It is when historically, of course, as a people, we have been in multiple times and we have worked our way through and supported each other through. But if you just came into this work on this high point when you were seeing millions of people marching for Black lives, and now here we are, you know, heading to the next election that doesn't look great, across the board and wondering where did this progress go, it can feel really disheartening. And that's part of actually what I hoped to address with the book. I wanted to show people what this kind of quieter everyday work looks like, what the people behind the scenes keeping us going looks like. Because the thing I have to remind myself as a Black woman is my existence today is owed to the continuous work of multiple generations of Black people, right? We exist because of it, because we're in a country that wants us dead you know, that wants to grind us to dust. And we are here because of that through hard times. And so knowing that I can't help but have hope, but I get where people are disheartened, you know, and it's absolutely a thing that now, you know, I, in my forties, you know, I remember, I think my, my climactic moment was probably the reelection of George W. Bush. Like that was my moment. I remember being in my twenties and being like, how, why, how did we get here? This is, you know, I've never felt more disillusioned in my life. And, you know, now when I'm talking to young people, I want to be like, buckle up. I want to talk a little bit about sort of your life and background. So your father is from Nigeria, your mother's from Kansas. You and your brother grew up a lot in Seattle, correct? So sort of the Pacific Northwest. How do you think your own sort of upbringing influenced how you approached activism? I don't think I would be the writer I am today had I not grown up in Seattle. And that's not necessarily speaking highly of Seattle. Uh, you know, Seattle is a, an incredibly white, it's one of the whitest major cities in the country, a uh, very wealthy, you know, kind of crunchy place that likes to have the right bumper stickers, the right windows, signs up, uh, and yet consistently ignores the incredibly big gaps in education for populations of color, um, homelessness rates. It loves to act like its poor population doesn't exist. Its black population doesn't exist. And I grew up in that. And so where I say I wouldn't be the writer I am today, if I hadn't grown up here, it's because I had to be so observant. This is not a space that's going to tell you to, to your face what they think of you. This is a space where you have to learn and watch what people do. Because everyone says they voted for Obama. Everyone recycles. But they will pass you over for a job. They will cross the street to avoid you. They will call you angry the moment that you have an opinion that people don't agree with, right? And I had to be like, what's going on here? Because people are saying one thing and they're doing another. And so for my own survival, being the only Black kid in almost every class I was in until sixth grade, right? Being called angry more times than I could count for just having an opinion, you know, all of these sorts of things, I had to, I had to be very observant to learn. And it helped me realize the real danger 
and not being upfront and honest, not having these conversations, how much danger it really puts Black people and other populations of color in, and how easy it enables white people to be able to be a part of harm and not know it. They could just easily say, I did this thing, I don't have to do anything else. And anything that makes me uncomfortable is an act of violence against me, right? And Seattle really has that ethos. And so for me, my general frustration, why I started writing was, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, I was watching people go, oh, that's so sad. Aren't you glad you don't live in Florida? And not recognizing how unsafe I felt every day, how much I didn't want to send my kids off to school, how worried I was for my brother, who's a six foot four black man who was on tour at the time and being handcuffed by police, you know, and things like that. And being like, you know, don't you understand (laughs) that this place is no safer? And every day it's big or small. Part of my life is being chipped away by the white supremacy here. And that's really what I was trying to communicate. And that's really why I started writing. You mentioned this before with some of the activists and organizers. Here we are. We're in 2024. There's a real tension in a lot of the sort of organizing and and activist community, certainly with with black and brown folks, about voting, whether or not it matters, whether or not you should put your time and effort into it, whether or not you are voting to get something or you're just voting to reduce harm. What are some of the sentiments that you got from the people you spoke to in the book about the value or purpose of voting? Because I think for people coming out of a generation when you couldn't, right, they obviously view it differently than Gen X or or even Zoomers today. You know, I would say it was a mix, but the one consensus I will say is when I asked people, what advice would you give people? No one said vote. It just didn't come up. People weren't saying don't vote. But when they were thinking about priorities and what was making a difference in communities, um, you know, people would say like show up at a school board meeting. And I think that is a difference. There is a local national split. I think that right now, it's. I think everyone kind of can see clearly that if you're looking at national politics and think that you're going to change the world on that level, it's probably not happening. And at most, you're trying to do some harm reduction. On a local level, it's a mix. There is some definite harm reduction that needs to happen because a lot of our more oppressive laws are tested on a local level first before they're brought nationally. And we have to be aware and we have to be fighting that. But also, there are some real progressive pieces of legislation that can be passed and they need support and we need to look for those. And so looking at who's in your school boards, who's in your city council, looking at these local initiatives, looking at things where they're trying to sneak in police funding, you know, all of these sorts of things, being aware really does matter. But also knowing that the real work where we're going to find new ways, where we're going to support real solutions, and where we're going to really keep people alive and thriving is being done outside of that system. So we really have to do both. And people thinking just vote is going to fix it. How many times have we heard that? If somebody's reading your book, right, when they get to the end of it, let's say they're not an activist, right? Let's say they're the person's like, look, I've been to one you know, I, I went to one school board meeting because my 13-year-old was mad about school lunches, right? Or, you know, I went to one protest once, you know, back in 2014 because my church youth group was talking about this, that, the other. For the the vast majority of Americans who are essentially bowling alone, right, and don't do this kind of engagement, what do you want them to take from your book? Because that's going to be, a, it's going to be a different experience for them than, than the organizers like, oh God, thank you. Because I was figuring out how I was going to deal with my depression. What do you want regular people to take from your book? One, I want them to recognize themselves in some of the movement workers in here. There are a lot of people who really never thought they would be doing what they're doing, right? But also recognizing 
that there are a lot of people doing this work that would just love your support, that would love for you to come out to an event. And at those events, you'll find community. You'll find people who share your values. You'll know you're safe. You know, you'll have a lot to build off of. So for a lot of people, if you're not ready, trust me, there is a space for you to support this work if you want to meet it there. And people need your support. So a lot of the people profiled are some of the most underfunded and yet vital movement workers we have. And they would just love for you to share what they're doing. They would love for you to show up at a community event they're hosting. You know, they would love any of this support and it would mean so much. And in fact, it would mean more than throwing some money to these big national orgs because people on the ground would feel it. These are the people going to people's homes and making change, right? Working with people one-on-one and making a real difference. You can support them, you can find community around them, and there's always a place for you. And I really hope that people get that, that, you know, you don't have to have a particular degree. You don't have to be willing to be out in the streets every single day. There is always space for you in this work if you want to do it. Ijeoma Aluo is a speaker, activist, and author. Her latest book is Be a Revolution, How Everyday People Are Fighting Oppression and Changing the World. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me. And that's a word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.